You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been building products, brands, marketplaces, startups, and go-to-market strategies for 23 years, including 10 years in venture-backed businesses in Silicon Valley. And I'm now semi-retired, helping a small handful of startups through one-on-one advisory engagements. And I'm Yanir, a software engineer, operator, coach, advisor, investor, and people geek. I have worked at Google and a number of scale-ups, and I'm now a co-founder at Circular, a high-growth startup. And our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that drives Silicon Valley-style disruption at scale. In this episode, we're going to discuss the place for big ideas in startups. Where do they come from? Do they really matter? What does a good idea look like? Validating your ideas, building consensus for your ideas, and so on. Chris, actually, I have a great idea for an app, and I thought maybe you could build it for me. (laughs) Sure, I'll, I'll get on that right away. Yeah. So look, I mean, you know, I think both of us, if, if we each had a dollar for every time someone said, oh, I have a great idea for an app, uh, we probably wouldn't have to do any other work. So maybe let's start with like, do ideas matter? Like, why is that funny? It's a great question. It's a cliche in Silicon Valley that ideas don't matter. And yet I, I, I interact with a lot of founders outside of Silicon Valley who haven't heard that phrase for some reason. I'm not sure why. Uh, I think if our, anyone in our audience is, is from the Valley or has worked in startups uh, for any length of time, probably rolling their eyes at this, at this entire topic, thinking that it's obvious. But this principle is really fundamental and it's, I, in my experience, not well understood. So, th- so to let's say it definitively, ideas don't matter. And in fact, there's another a fun phrase I like, which is ideas are like assholes. Everyone's got one. <laughs> I, I really like that. Um, but yes, everyone's got an idea and I, I largely agree that I get ideas don't matter, right? Yeah. Everyone has an idea. Um, but I, I also think maybe part of the issue is what do we mean by an idea? Right? So I think often when people talk about an idea, they have an idea for a solution, right? I've got this app that I'm going to build this invention, right? When people say ideas, it's nearly like they've invented something out of whole cloth and now all you have to do is build it and you know glory and success will come to them so if we accept that as a premise of what people mean by an idea why why are ideas like that so cheap and ultimately so useless well there's a lot of aspects of this right so you mentioned i have an idea for an app and so you're you're actually you've you've gone off the tracks right there so you you're talking about an app and an app is merely the tip of an iceberg. It is the the thing that a customer might interact with. But actually what you need is to be thinking about a business. You want a business model. You want a whole bunch of operations. You want, uh, we talked about in the last episode, uh, unit economics. But what you really, really want at the beginning is a problem. Uh, Amen. Yes. And a problem, to be clear, is looking around you in the world and finding inefficiency, waste, pain, frustration, middlemen, archaic systems, or patterns of behavior that have not been updated based on new technologies, new cultural inclinations, and new ways of thinking. I I love problems. And you know, one of the things I often say is that 
problem and opportunity are really two sides of the same coin. It's like, is the glass half full or half empty? Ultimately, a problem is an opportunity and an opportunity is a problem, right? And why problems are important is if you solve them for people, then you have actually made the world a better place for them. And that is something that they're willing to pay for. So solving a problem and having a viable business, to your point, are really inextricably linked. Another, another saying I love about this subject is an opportunity at first appears like hard work. And oftentimes when I'll talk to some inexperienced people about business and you might be brainstorming and they'll say, oh yeah, but it's really hard to do X. That hard thing, <laughs> that's the opportunity. That is the point of the business you would build. Whether it's hard to solve a logistical problem or hard to break into a market or hard to simplify a complex process, that simplification, that problem solving is precisely the point of the business and at the point of value creation. And so people often run away from opportunity or want to run away from problems and rather they're actually just passionate about building a glossy app that they have in their head and a particular little user interaction. And they're often thinking about, you know, it would be great if the world just behaved in this way, then this other thing would be possible. But what you really need to think about is the world behaves in this other way and there's enormous amounts of pain and friction and suffering that way. Let us find ways to simplify or automate or reduce the cost of that behavior. Yeah. And, and you know, I think like, obviously you need to take a fairly broad view of what we mean by problem. If you think of entertainment, right? You could say, well, okay, this is not solving a problem in the world, but in a sense, you're still solving a problem in people's lives right? Which is perhaps they're bored. Perhaps they want to learn something new. Perhaps they want a forum that allows them to socialize and your entertainment or social product is helping solve that problem for them. So, you know, Clayton Christensen, the great business thinker talks about jobs to be done. And in a sense, that's just another way of talking about a problem, right? There's a job to be done. People have a problem in their lives, a job that they need done in their lives, and they're looking for the product that they can to use, to use Professor Christensen's terminology, they can hire to do that job for them. And so your job when you're building a product and then ultimately a business is to produce the solution that is the one that enough people will hire to solve their job that you have a, a strong and growing business. The other aspect of this, it's actually not about the first idea. It's about the 17,000 other ideas you need to have about precisely how to execute your larger grand idea or the larger problem that you've identified. And to give you a really clear example of this, have a think about social networking, right? Back in the day, there was a thing called GeoCities. Then there was a thing called Six Degrees. There was a thing called MySpace. And then there was a thing called Facebook. And these are all fundamentally at a high level, the same idea. You know, the line in the movie, The Social Network, the Mark Zuckerberg character says, if you had invented Facebook, you would have invented Facebook. You know, you look at the way MySpace looked and felt and played out as a business versus the way Facebook looked and felt and played out as a business. There was a dramatically different outcome from the same sponsoring thought, which is that people should connect around online media. And so that is one of the other reasons that ideas are fairly worthless is because people forget that the world is really, really big 
and that there's room for multiple variations of the same big idea and that the execution of that idea by different people with different target personas, with different go-to-market strategies, with different sensibilities will actually produce wildly different outcomes in product and business from the same exact idea, which then leads you to the next point, which is it's also not worthwhile to protect your idea. You know, often you'll encounter people who ask you to sign an NDA or who are afraid to share their idea. And really you have to drag people kicking and screaming to your idea in the first place, because the very best people are too busy doing their own ideas. But even if they were to drop everything and decide to steal yours, their execution is going to be radically different than yours. And so what's much, much more likely to happen when you share your idea is that you might, just might, if you're very lucky, find a cheerleader, a supporter, an investor, a helper who might uh, come along that journey and connect you to the right things and the right processes and the right capital. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. We, we've really ragged pretty heavily on ideas and, and how useless they are. And yet, in a sense, if, if you want to start anything, it does start with an idea, right? Like if you're going to start a startup, you can't just say, oh, I'm starting a startup and not have any thought about what it is that your startup is about. So ideas have their place. And so I guess I'd, I'd be interested to discuss for a little bit, you know, what does a good idea look like? What do we mean by a good idea? And then, you know, how, how do we treat that idea in the broader picture, right? And, and you, you're talking about, for example, definitely your idea should not be a secret. You shouldn't be getting people to sign NDAs. Uh, you shouldn't be patenting it. That is, you know, definitely the wrong way to get something going, but ideas have their place. And so what, what is a good idea and what is their place? So there, there definitely are ideas, as you said, rattling around in your head, you have to have some clue about what you're working on, but you know, again, to really unpack what we talked about at the very beginning here, the idea needs to be about a problem. It needs to be about identifying, as I said, inefficiency, waste, frustration, suffering in some way. So your idea needs to be, oh, look, this is a, a legacy process or a legacy business or a legacy way of thinking or a legacy technology, legacy being a fancy word for old, right? This is an outdated way of thinking about the world, engaging in the world building a marketplace, facilitating an interaction. And your key insight really needs to be, hey, if I apply a new business model or a new technology or a new cultural norm or a new way of thinking about this problem, I can reduce that pain, reduce that friction, reduce that cost. And from there, you might have some hypotheses, some early instincts about what kind of product or business would solve that. But, and this is something we should move into perhaps next. The, the key is to not be attached to that idea of the solution. You have some loosely held hypotheses, but there you test them and then you iterate through them all the while holding on to the problem, not your idea for how to solve it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think there's two things to unpack there, that your idea should be problem focused and not solution focused, right? You can have an idea about a problem that could be well solved. There is this famous quote, I can't remember where it's attributed to, which is 
fall in love with the problem, not with the solution. So have a, a problem focus. Now, what is a good problem? I think you, you hinted at that, which is people have had a lot of problems for a long time, uh, and they already have solutions to those problems that are perhaps legacy to your point. Now, what makes an old solution bad? First of all, an old solution isn't necessarily bad, but you have to understand that the solution that exists today is a combination of technology that was available at the time that solution took place combined with inertia and habit and just random events. And so as the technology space changes, as you said, cultural norms change and other things change, you have the opportunity to take that same problem and create a radically different and hopefully at least along some dimensions, radically better solution. I think maybe we can, we can give some examples here, but it, it's important to note there is always new technologies, business processes and models and norms evolving and emerging over time. And then that rate of change is accelerating, right? So what might've been a legacy business, you know, 50 years ago got disrupted perhaps more recently, but you can see businesses more recently being disrupted by yet newer businesses now. So you, there's always a new norm, a new technology, a new business model emerging that allows you to rethink some of these principles. And that is ex only accelerating. And in a, in a deep sense, this is what technological progress is. Technology is new tools, but the tools themselves aren't interesting in themselves. What new tools give you is the opportunity to, to create new solutions to existing problems and to new problems. And that's what progress is from a technological point of view. I actually have a great example here of an increasing rate of change and disruption. So let's think about classifieds. The newspaper really made their money from classifieds, help wanted ads and, and people asking for or offering services in their classified pages. During the dot-com era, that was just pretty thoroughly disrupted by things like Craigslist, which allowed people to display their classifieds online, basically for free. And then there was more modern directory listing services, maybe more like Yelp and Groupon. And then those were then further disrupted by on-demand marketplaces, right? So that we went from directories, which were relatively passive, where you just list some unstructured content about what you want, and people had to read through that and respond and negotiate with you to structured marketplaces where the offer and, and the request were highly structured and were able to move with more liquidity all the way to, you get to Uber where you are actually disrupting fundamental human interaction. You know, the, the old cliche was don't get in cars with strangers. And then it was like, well, don't get in cars with strangers unless they're painted yellow and have been verified by a taxi company with a medallion service with thick layers of regulation and a multi hundred thousand dollar fit out of equipment. And with the power of a supercomputer in your pocket, we eliminated all of that. And we were able to mediate trust in a radically different way. We were able to mediate or monitor location to connect two people in real time at runtime. And so you go from newspaper classifieds to Craigslist, to more purpose-built directories, to on-demand marketplaces affecting the real world in really just kind of relatively a short period of time on the scale of human history. 
Actually, a, a fun anecdote related to that, and, and I promise it does have at least some amount of a point, which is uh, a long time ago, I was traveling through Central Asia, and, and I believe this is true throughout much of the, the former Soviet bloc. You could just stand on a road and you could flag down a random private vehicle. This was before the, the era of Uber. You would just sort of poke your arm out and anybody who wanted to make a few extra bucks would just pull over and drive you where you were going. Um, and it was pretty scary at first, but it, it does seem to work. And I guess the, the point to this, such as there is one, is you talked about cultural norms that change, right? So there is an aspect that's not just technological, but cultural to this. So in a sense, Uber in Western countries had to overcome this entirely embedded idea that you don't get into cars with strangers. Whereas in Kyrgyzstan, everyone's getting into cars with strangers. That would be, it'd be interesting to know how Uber does in a country like that. These are the things that really matter when you're, when you're building a startup and in a sense, why, you know, just having an idea is cheap. You know, we were talking about what makes a good idea and one is the problem focus. The other is humility, right? You, you were sort of talking about this. You don't really know what's going to work. There are so many variables. The real world is infinitely complex. You know, I like to say that the answer to any sufficiently interesting question is it depends. And so if you just have an idea and you don't test it out and make lots of learnings on the way and make lots of decisions. And to your point, Chris, ultimately you have thousands of ideas that go into turning your big idea into a reality, then you're not going to get anywhere. So you have to have that humility and say, I, I have an idea of what this problem is, but there's so much that I still don't know. And the only way I'm going to get to know it is to get started and to keep an open mind. So I also have a bit of a side story that might seem only tangentially related, but it really is about the changing norms and changing business models. You, you actually touched on this. In the old days, people used to be able to stick their hand out and ask for a ride from a stranger. And actually in the old days, life was really, really peer to peer. People would tell stories to each other around the campfire. They would give each other a ride. They would help their neighbor. And then as we developed a certain kind of technology, a certain kind of business model, things became far more top-down. You had these editorial processes at these larger media companies and, and newspapers and eventually conglomerates. You had these kind of top-down uh, institutions like taxi companies and so on. But what's happening in the new business models, the new era where there is a, a supercomputer in your pocket, things are actually becoming, again, more peer-to-peer. -peer. There is social media instead of top-down um, broadcast media. There is peer-to-peer rideshare. And so it's actually interesting that the, the technology broke standard peer-to-peer -peer civilization and the norms changed to be top-down. And then technology is once again breaking the cultural norms and, and society is becoming more peer-to-peer. -peer. You can see these ebbs and flows. And of course, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us and the rate of change accelerates. But let's rotate over to validating your idea. You mentioned, you know, how do you make sure your idea is a good one? L let me touch a little bit on ways that don't work for validating your idea. And, and maybe one of you, you will talk more about uh, good ways of validating your idea. Sure. I've often seen in markets outside of Silicon Valley, a real enthusiasm for validation from media, from academia, and from government. The founders get really excited if the media covers their startup or if the government gives them a grant 
or if academia does a pilot with them or, or a study. And I can tell you in Silicon Valley, uh, I, most of them don't, couldn't care less about media, academia, or government. The only kind of validation that matters is user or customer validation. Do people pick it up, use it, retain on it, and eventually pay for it? That's it. And at what rate are they doing that? And how do you accelerate that rate? I'm often amused by some of the, the recent narratives about Facebook and about the algorithms of Facebook and around how some of these tech companies work. And there's a really, especially in the media, but in, in other sectors of society, there's a really a lack of acknowledgement that the problem with Silicon Valley companies like Facebook is not that what they're doing. It's that they're doing it way better than historical companies have ever done it before. Every company in the history of the world has tried to create an addictive product that people love. Everyone. The only problem is that they haven't succeeded as well as Facebook has. And so it's a little bemusing to look at like, well, how dare they be so addictive? How dare they be so effective? How dare they be so commercially minded when really they're just extremely effective at the same pattern of behavior that every company has tried before? I mean, I mean my drug dealer says the same thing. Yes, <laughs> exactly. The drug dealers and Facebook, they've both and, and cracked the code. That's right. And it's like the fentanyl manufacturers are like, what's your problem? We're giving the people what they want. So, I mean, exactly. you're right. There's still a strong moral dimension, I guess I'd like to say. But but yes, this is business you're taking to its logical conclusion, right? You, right? you build a product that people really love to use. That's right. And And the same thing with like Uber surge pricing, right? There was a lot of backlash against the idea that Uber would increase prices when there's high demand. But the thing that it continued to amuse me was like, well, the price of strawberries increases when there's high demand and the price of airline tickets and the price of hotel rooms. And the difference with Uber was that it's hyper-efficient, it's real-time priced adjustments, and it was being hyper-transparent, which is it'll telling you what the multiple was. But the idea of surge pricing is is at the heart of supply and demand. So people were kind of yelling at capitalism. Yeah. And fascinatingly, Uber's gotten much less transparent over the years on surge pricing. And I imagine their testing showed that people were much happier when they had less transparency on it. So back to the question of validating ideas in the market. Yes. There's sort of the, the market as the ruler of validation, but there's even a nuance there that I think is worth getting into that very much speaks to the, the lean startup methodology that's rightfully very popular in terms of how you think of startups, which is when you, when you think about market validation, another thing that traditional companies often do is things like focus groups, asking people, do you like this thing or would you use this product? And the problem with that is it is rife with various biases, both on behalf of the people in the focus group and the people, uh, interpreting the results of the focus group and yeah. the quality of the knowledge there is often quite low. Just because people say they will use something doesn't mean they will use it. And so not only do you have to be focused on users rather than these third parties, such as government, but the only way to really validate your idea is in the market itself. And so the logic of that is pretty much what drives so many other things in Silicon Valley. You know, why do we talk about building fast and iterating? You, the idea there is really you get your product into the market so you can learn if your solution is actually a good solution to the problem that you are purporting to solve. 
I couldn't agree more. One of the many problems with focus groups is that people are polite. They want to help you find a purpose for your ideas. And so when you show someone your idea or your, your app, your, your concept, they'll, they'll very often, even if they don't like it, they'll often say, oh yeah, I can see how my cousin Harry would really like this. And you want to listen out for that because that doesn't mean your idea is good. It means they're being polite. What you want to hear is I need this immediately. When can I get it? And how much do you want to get paid? That's mm -hmm. when they're really, really interested. And the other thing that happens in focus groups is people want to be seen as adding value. So they'll give you some kind of skepticism or they'll start throwing out other ideas to try to feel like they're really contributing. And I, I really couldn't agree more with you, which is you want to come up with the, the leanest, thinnest slice of product to try to test some of your hypotheses, put it into the real world and see if anyone actually cares with their behavior. And that is the ultimate focus group. That is the ultimate survey. Do people click? Do they sign up? Do they use? Do they stick around? That's right. And I don't know if you remember those old ads for Ikea, where they sort of show all the horrible, brittle machines, these sort of torture devices they create for their furniture to see if it can survive real world use. That is what you want to do to your idea, right? You want to treat it like absolute crap. Right? You, you want to use and abuse it and see if it still comes out the other end, the same shape as it went in. Um, and the only way you can do that is out in the market. So that is, that is what startups are in, to a large extent, is they are these validation machines. Absolutely. So, you know, we're at the 30 some minute mark here. I think it's worth rotating a little bit over to, okay, you've, you've identified a good problem. You've had some hypotheses around this problem. And perhaps you've even done some early uh, validation of this idea by putting up um, the thinnest possible slice to test some of your hypotheses. And, and that thin slice might be little more than a, a web page um, with some ads being thrown up to see if anybody clicks through and, and tries to sign up. It might be a, you know, a very, very uh, simple version of the, of the product with just one key feature and so on. We, there's, there's a whole episode we can make about what does an MVP look like and what does a real test of a hypothesis look like. And I suspect you, you and I Yana, have a lot to say about MVPs and, and we will. Mm. But that before you get to executing your idea, you, you first need to build a little bit of consensus around, uh, usually you have to build some consensus with some craftspeople, right? Some people who perhaps know how to build uh, a website or build a brand or run some Facebook ads. Assuming you don't know how to do all of that yourself, you're going to need some people around you to help. Yes. And, and investors, so, let's not forget, you know, that critical part of our ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, typically, unless you're a successful multi-time founder, it's typically a bit harder to get an investor on board before you've done some validation of your hypothesis, right? Got so it. I'm assuming, but, but even investors uh, play a part in this, in this really early stage, you need a way of driving alignment across these very early collaborators, whether they're investors or a website designer or a brand designer, or even an engineer to build a very simple prototype. So, you know, what are the ways that you would recommend going about driving alignment around an idea that is just rattling around in your head? I, I think it, it really does come down to that articulation of a problem. So for that, there's really this process of, of gathering evidence and storytelling. And, you know, again, you, you're right, Chris, we're not at the point necessarily where we're talking to investors, but 
the process isn't that different, right? You, you actually need to put a, a pitch together, I think. And, you know, the, a pitch doesn't mean a polished sales deck with, with nice PowerPoint slides. Actually, much better if you don't do that. But a pitch means you need to have some sort of unique insight about a problem and be able to communicate it effectively to the sorts of people who you need in your coalition to help solve it. You, you went precisely where I was hoping you would go, which is that pitch. Often when I'm fir working with first time founders at the, the problem definition stage, the first thing I get them to do is make an investor pitch deck. Even though we have no intention to pitch an investor immediately, it, it, it does help to sharpen the mind because oftentimes there are, you know, many, many ways to, uh, describe the problem. There are many sub problems within a broader theme. There are many possible hypotheses or solutions or personas or business models. There are many possible product solutions and there are many go to market strategies. And so what you want to do initially is collapse all those potentialities into some reality, some actionable tactical plan. Now, it may not be the plan you're going to live with for the rest of that startup's life, but it is a place to start, or at least it's a series of areas to investigate. And so you need to write that down in a deck, roughly using the same narrative you would use to pitch an investor. And what you don't want to do is develop a 40 page business plan. What you don't want to do is continue to just uh, kind of pontificate and ideate in a cloud with people about the 17,000 ways this can be really exciting. You need to document the first tactical, pragmatic things you're going to do to test and deliver value to the market, to bring all of your stakeholders into alignment, including and eventually early investors, friends and family, and so on. Right. Which, which brings us in a sense, full circle back to ideas, right? So we said ideas don't matter and we, we were being provocative in a sense, they don't matter that much, but this is where they do matter, right? Which is you need to have a good idea for a problem. And then you need to have some ideas for approaches to solving it, right? Not for what the solution looks like, but what tools and skills you might use you know, some of the, the traditional questions, especially in like early stage investing pitches are like, why you, why now? Right. So in order to be able to answer that, you do need to have some idea of the solution space that you might be exploring. And that in a sense is what your idea is, right? So going all the way back, okay, what does a good idea look like? It is something that you can express in this form, right? Which is, I have a good understanding of a problem that I think we might be able to solve better than it's currently being solved in these sorts of ways. Now that might not turn out to be true, but that is enough to get you started. And anything more than that is too much. Anything less than that is not enough. It really is an art rather than a science. And, and that's why you want to have good people around you, good collaborators. Um, hopefully some of them have had some experience turning problems, hypotheses, and yes, ideas into real execution. You know, there is probably two or three or four episodes we can do on the next phase of this, which is the, the execution phase, the operational operationalization phase. And we will. And so you, you've got to stay tuned for that. But, you know, I think in today's episode, you know, we touched on what is the place of ideas in a startup? Do they really matter? 
how you need to focus on problems and how different approaches to solving problems can create wildly different variations from the same high level idea, how you don't want to really protect your idea, but you want to really find a way to put it into the right people's hands and get them to help you out, how you might uh, validate those ideas. And then uh, ultimately, how do you drive consensus with your early collaborators and, and then rotate into execution? But uh, I'm super excited about diving into the execution part of the next few episodes. Absolutely. Execution is, is my bread and butter. And it's actually, in my view, where the magic happens. Really keen to do that. So I think if you take one thing away from this episode, it is that ideas, to the extent that they're important, are much more about understanding a problem that you think you can solve than having an idea for a solution. Your first idea for a solution is nearly certain to be wrong. So don't get hung up on that. Fall in love with the problem. Understand the problem. That is where ideas matter. So the question is for you guys, you know, we would love to see you in the comments wherever you're listening to this uh, and, and give us your thoughts about ideas. Do you, do you buy the concept that they're essentially worthless? Also, what we'd love to hear from you is what should we talk about next? You know, we have some ideas about what to talk about, but we would love to hear from you guys. You know, is this kind of content working for you? What are the subjects and topics we should cover next? And also make sure to follow us on all the usual social medias. Yanev uh, and I have our own social media accounts. I'm sure you can find them, some clever Googling, and we'll be setting up some social media for uh, the Startup Podcast as well. I'd love to ask the audience specifically to subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcast app you use. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We have an RSS feed that you can plug into anything else. The number one way you can feed the algorithm for our podcast is to subscribe. And that way you will get every episode hot in your feed as well. And we promise you it will be worth it. So if you can do that, and if you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, if, if you're an Apple user, we would be incredibly grateful. So click all the right buttons, tell the algorithm that you like this. And uh, tune in next time as we start to dig deeper into startups and uh, how to execute ideas. Thanks, Chris. Have a good one.